Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Go to uh, lifeinnaples.net to find out more. We have terrific guests for today's show. And as we have for the last 14 years, we're going to have Mark Schulman on. On Monday, we're going to be talking about current global affairs. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll also visit with Larry Reed. He's a professor, I'm excuse me, president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We've talked about getting the most out of others. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of books, his two latest are Murder Mysteries, uh, Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. It is December the 7th, and on this day in 1941, at 7.55 a.m. Hawaii time, a Japanese dive bomber bearing red symbol of the rising sun of Japan on its wings appears out of the clouds and above the island of Oahu. A swarm of 360 Japanese warplanes followed descending on U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in a ferocious assault. The surprise attack struck a critical blow against the U.S. Pacific Fleet and drew the United States irrevocably into World War II. With diplomatic negotiations with Japan breaking down, President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his advisors knew that the attack might be imminent, and it was probable, but nothing had been done to increase security at the important naval base in Pearl Harbor. It was Sunday morning, and when military personnel had been given passes to attend religious services off base, at 7.02 a.m., two radar operators spotted large groups of aircraft in a flight towards the island from the north. But with a flight of B-17s expected from the United States at the time, they were told to sound no alarm. Thus, the Japanese air assault came at a devastating surprise to the U.S. naval base. Much of the Pacific fleet was rendered useless. Five of the eight battleships, three destroyers, and seven other ships were sunk or severely damaged. More than 200 aircraft were destroyed. A total of 2,400 Americans were killed and 1,200 were wounded. Many, while violently trying to repulse the attack, Japan's losses were some 30 planes, five midget submarines, and a fewer, fewer than 100 men. Fortunately for the United States, all three Pacific Fleet carriers were out to sea on training maneuvers. These giant aircraft carriers would have had, had their revenge against the Japan uh, in six months at the Battle of Midway, reversing the tide against the previously invincible Japanese Navy in a spectacular victory. The day Pearl Harbor was bombed, President Roosevelt appeared before a joint session of Congress and declared yesterday, December the 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan, he said. After a brief and forceful speech, he asked Congress to approve a resolution recognizing the state of war between the United States and Japan. Senate uh, voted for the war against Japan 82 to nothing, and House of Representatives approved the resolution by a vote of 388 to 1. The sole dissenter was Representative Jeanette Rankin of Montana, a devout pacifist who had also cast a dissenting vote against entering World War I. Three days later, Germany and Italy had declared war against the United States, and the U.S. became involved and responded in kind. The United States' contribution to the successful Allied war effort spanned four years at the cost of more than, get this, 400,000 American lives. I'm sure we'll be talking to Mark Schulman more about D-Day later in the program. Stocks rose to record levels on Friday, notching another weak advance as traders shook off disappointing U.S. jobs reports. Dow Jones Industrial average closed at 30,218. That's an all-time high closing for the Dow. Dow. Futures are down just a little bit right now, but they seem to be improving, so we'll see what happens today. The Florida Department of Health on Saturday reported 203 new cases of COVID-19 and four additional deaths. There were 175 cases yesterday and one death. Uh, 85 uh, patients currently are in Collier County hospitals, and if you recall, at the very beginning of this, our concern was overwhelming the healthcare system. And right now, 
Uh, 85 beds filled because of COVID. There's plenty of beds right now, so it's the, our system is not being overwhelmed, even though cases are up. Uh, COVID, uh, COVID <laughs> confirmed COVID-19 cases nearly doubled at Collier Hospital's uh, primary and secondary schools, I should say, in November, according to the data from the Florida Department of Health. So the cases numbered at doubled at schools. I didn't find it more than there was one school that had uh, 30 students that had COVID-19. Most had single-digit numbers, so certainly nothing to be concerned about about the kids at school. That's 93 percent uh, more than uh, 169 confirmed cases on October 31st. So the cases have certainly doubled. But how many of these cases were hospitalized? I suspect not many, if any. How many have already recovered since the cases date back to school opening in September? I suspect a whole bunch. Again, I, I'm concerned about how the news is presented on this because it seems to be fanning the flames of fear. With uh, Florida poised to notch its first one millionth coronavirus case, Governor Ron DeSantis held his first press conference in four weeks on Monday to declare that mask mandates and business closures in other states are wrongheaded and he alone has plotted the right course to combat the pandemic. Offering blistering criticism of actions by governors in other states uh, and doctors and healthcare specialists, even the White House Coronavirus Task Force, DeSantis doubled down on his long-held insistence that he won't implement any measures to slow the spread of the virus among the general population. I'm imposed to mandates, period, he said. I don't think they worked, he said during an appearance at an elementary school in Kissimmee. People in Florida wear masks uh, when they go out. They don't have to be strung up by a bayonet to do it, he said. Likewise, he said, business shut shutdowns serve no purpose other than to rob people of their livelihoods. The lie of the lockdown was, is if you lock down, then you can beat the virus, he said. Why are people having lockdown two or three times if lockdowns are so effective? Why is that, he said. Further, he said, the cost of business closures hurts some more than others. What really irks me about this, he says, is the cost of the lockdowns are borne by the working class people. The benefit is the Zoom class, the upper income people who can work from home, he said. Not everybody can do that. You have to go out. But in the case people didn't get the message, DeSantis simplified it. No lockdowns, no fines, no school closures, he said. No one's losing their jobs because of a government directive. God bless Governor DeSantis. I really appreciate his, his approach to this. While other people are sky is falling, chicken little uh, movements here by elected officials. By the way, Joe Biden presented his idea on Friday at C on CNN of reopening elementary schools safely while also saying that elementary schools have the highest risk of disease transmission. What is he talking about? That's unbelievable. Of course, they have the lowest and uh, almost no cases in elementary schools. Most of the cases, by the way, in Cuyahoga County are among the high school students. The elementary school students don't seem to be getting coronavirus. Well, hundreds attended the 47th annual Christmas on 5th. It was pretty cool. A synthetic ice rink, outdoor dining and music. It was pretty cool to see uh, that people were enjoying themselves on the Par Paradise Coast. Also, there's a newly renourished stretch of beach from Doctors Pass just north of Louderbeth Park. It's ready for beachgoers. There's 63,000 tons of sand from a Mockley mine. The Naples shoreline uh, made their last delivery to raise and widen the beach. So it's all ready for you if you want to go down to the beach uh, down there in Loudermark Park. It was a $2 million project, by the way. State, le state legislators are uh, introducing a petition to call a special session on December 8th. The session would be, be meant to review the election results and alleged fraud. The petition must be signed by three-fifths of the members of each house. The lawmakers must also give a copy to the Secretary of State. So this is moving forward. That's looking good. The Wisconsin State Assembly Committee on Campaigns and Elections is slated to hold a hearing on Friday, December the 11th. With numerous concerns brought forward, we will proceed with the election investigation, said Assembly Speaker uh, Robert Voss, or Robin Voss. We must ensure that every legal vote was counted. And then more than 60 Pennsylvania Republican lawmakers have signed a letter asking their representatives in Congress to block the Commonwealth's electoral votes from going to the president-elect uh, Joe Biden. 
the letter signed by 64 Republican legislators and sent to Pennsylvania members of Congress on Friday outlined several ways in which they believe Governor Tom Wolf and others undermined election safeguards that gave the public confidence in the results. So that's moving forward, although you may be aware that uh, Samuel Lito, Associate Justice in the Supreme Court, has asked for information uh, uh, from the Pennsylvania legislator by, I believe, today. And, of course, he wants to continue to investigate the results of the Pennsylvania election as well. So things are coming right now. They're kind of the loops are starting to close, and uh, there's so much more to talk about. Rudy Giuliani, by the way, is getting great care and feeding. He did get coronavirus. He looked a little under the weather uh, on Maria Bartiroma's show on Sunday, but uh, a few hours later, he did get tested. Said I've got coronavirus, and he's getting treatment right now at George Washington Medical Center. So hopefully, he'll recover soon. Uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Lifeinnaples.net is the website. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and now building a new performing arts center right down in the middle of Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific website, multimedia website, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. And I want to just point out to our listeners that you right now are in Israel, in Tel Aviv. And how are things going in Tel Aviv? I'm mixed at the moment. Um, the numbers of COVID has gone up because they started opening up um, too many things. When I say too many things, they had a plan they were going to open up based on certain levels of um, of cases, 
And despite the fact the cases kept rising, they kept on opening, and now they're not sure where to go from here. Mm. There's always the pressure between the need to have kids in school and the need to open up businesses versus the the rising COVID rate. That always is the push and pull. Yeah, and so, the the unintended consequences of lockdown too. Those are there's a lot of stuff to to weigh. A lot of it's very complicated. No, there's no question it is very complicated back and forth. But it's getting less complicated uh, now that there really is light at the end of this tunnel, and it's not an oncoming train, as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that depending, you know, you can make the argument it's a month, six months, but within six months, uh, this will be over because the vaccines, unless people are too stupid to take vaccines. But as long as as long as the majority of people in all over the world end up taking the vaccines, the virus will die. So and, I want to come uh, back. I'd like to come back to the coronavirus and what's happening around the world. Before this is a, a very important uh, day in history. Uh, yes, it is. Today it was attacked at Pearl Harbor. So I'd like to start our, our conversation about that, Mark. What are your thoughts? Absolutely, as, as Franklin Roosevelt said, a day that will live in infamy mm-hmm. for the United States. The United States. Um, Sort of thought, certainly on the Pacific side, that it could stay out of World War II. It was somewhat involved in terms of uh, supporting Great Britain, obviously, in the Atlantic. There was um, Lend-Lease and other assistance the United States was giving. Um, but the attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor came as pretty much a complete surprise. Um, there was you know, fear that the Japanese might attack American bases, the Philippines or somewhere else, but they launched a surprise attack. Um, Ultimately, it boomeranged on Japan, but they their view was if they can knock the United States out of the war with one big one big punch, that maybe the United States will sue for peace and there won't be an issue. But um, three things went wrong yeah. for the Japanese on that day. While they managed to destroy the America's battleship fleet, the battleships were not what was important in World War II. It was the aircraft carriers, mm-hmm. and the American aircraft carriers were at sea right. uh, during the attack, so they couldn't attack. They couldn't destroy them. They didn't destroy the fuels. It was a Pearl Harbor, which provided um, fuel for the ships after after the attack. And third, they didn't understand America really. Uh, one of the biggest problems I put problems in quotation marks of America's um, adversaries throughout the world never understood is that America is like a sleeping uh, a sleeping giant or mm. a sleeping lion, however you want to look at it. As long as it's sleeping, it's not all that dangerous. But if you wake it up and you wake it up in the wrong way. Uh, there's no stopping. Yeah. That's what happened in terms of World War II and Pearl Harbor. Americans united, even those people who felt that the United States should not get involved in the war once America was attacked in the way it was attacked. Um, everyone rallied and everyone did what they could, enlisted and did whatever they could do financially and everything else for the war effort. And um, that was the Japanese fatal mistake. They didn't understand that they had no way of beating the United States once it fully was going to mobilize. Yeah. You know, I'd like to do a, a little shout out to uh, Lou Paper. He wrote a book called In the Cauldron. Now, he's a local author, but it's about the uh, about the tension and uh, the American ambassadors struggle to avoid Pearl Harbor. So there were uh, warning signs, certainly, from what could happen. But the other point that I'd like to make, I read the book, and so it's very fascinating. I know a little bit more mo- about this than most. But the other thing is racism played such an important part in this. The, the Japanese absolutely hated anybody that wasn't like them. Right. Well, that's always been the case with the Japanese. The Japanese have the most closed society. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent uh, many years negotiating with and working with Japanese, and uh, I was involved in a school that that uh, bought a campus from a Japanese school, and then we shared the campus. And our ability to work together was really limited. We we succeeded in buying the campus from them, but uh, the pushback and the fact that they wanted to be their separate ways, um, and you know, you can't get Japanese citizenship by have acquaintances, once with friends who were born in Japan, mm-hmm. but were born, you know, they're Anglo-Saxons. Uh, their parents were um, were um, traders who were living in Japan, and they were born there, mm-hmm. um, but they were never able to obtain Japanese citizenship. Mm-hmm. So that's very much the, the case of the Japanese, that they, they consider their culture superior, and, you know, a lot of people do that, so... That, that was part of what was going on. Of course, we had our own racism against the Japanese. It's yes. One of those, you know, we, we, we've we had a long history of racism against Asians in America. We had all the, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act, and we Japanese, we put Japanese in special schools in San Francisco in, the, in 1906. So Special camps during the World War II. I mean, they rounded up the uh, Japanese and 
put them in, in, in camps in California, as I recall. That was right. Cool. Absolutely. One of, you know, one of the worst um, examples of, of um, violations of civil rights that the United States has ever done. Um, so what, you know, that, again, you had an hysteria at that point. Right. So, uh, you know, and of course, I don't know why this comes to mind right now, but Winston Churchill, once famous for saying, the, uh, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing once they've tried everything else. <laughs> it was, right, well, it's very much, look, the United States did not want to get involved in the war against Hitler. And, you know, Hitler, I mean, quite frankly, was really stupid in the sense that he had a mutual agreement with the Japanese and he, he kept his word and he declared war on the United States. So it didn't even require Roosevelt, once we got attacked by the Japanese, convince the American people that Hitler was also our enemy because he had declared war on us. Mm -hmm. So that that took care of that problem. Um, look, the American Americans have tried to to pull back from the world. You know, certainly prior to World War One, America had pulled back. After World War One, America didn't join the League of Nations and pulled back. And of course, we saw what happened uh, in terms of the world going to World War Two. Yeah. Um, it, it's you know one of the things that really needs to be thought about is when you're as big and as powerful as the United States and you have an army that's many times the size of any other country in the world, you need to sort of understand what your role is or should be. And one of the things that the United States has done since um, since the beginning of the last century, until then Britain were, the, were those who, who ensured the fact that the uh, sea lanes of the world were open for travel. Uh, and commerce, obviously. Since World War, certainly uh, since World War II, and to some extent in the interwar years, it was the United States who kept on growing industrial that took on that role. Right. And, you know, you, someone has to have that role, so to speak. If not, the pirates grow and chaos reigns. So either that or an international army, which nobody wants. So, no, I no will say this. I will say this. Uh, Woodrow Wilson tried to t play a special role after World War One, and fr frankly, the Versailles Treaty I think sowed the seeds for World War Two. It's, it's such a, a remarkable way, not only with uh, the harm done to Germany in their recovery after World War One, but also in the Middle East. So, so many bad and poor decisions made, uh, and uh, you know, I think they're still recovering from it. Well, look, particularly the problem in Versailles more than anything else with the reparations that, that mm -hmm. the Allies demanded um, on the Germans. Right. And that led to the hyperinflation in, Japan, in excuse me, Germany and the rise of Hitler and the right. Um, it, it's quite clear that um, that really was, was a problem, and you had, um, you had people even then calling it out, and that's part of the reason the United States didn't, uh, didn't get involved in the... Um, League of Nations was, was uh, uh, Keynes, the famous economist, and was involved in negotiations, came out with the book in 1919, decrying the reparations, saying it will lead to disaster. Yeah. And um, he was right. Yeah, he absolutely was right. Mark, I have so many other things we need to talk about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com you'll be glad you did welcome back to the bob harton show and now here's your host bob harton 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and just that's just one of the initiatives you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So, uh, what's happening with Brexit? Well, they're coming down to the wire. They have not negotiated an agreement at the moment. And, you know, it depends hour by hour. It's optimistic we're going to reach an agreement. It's very pessimistic. There's no chance we're going to reach an agreement. The various issues relating to customs unions and fishing rights, the latest, and again, when I say latest, that's, you know, as of two hours ago, and it could have changed since then, is the pessimism and that they won't reach an agreement, um, which the problem being that there'll be a certain level of chaos if there's no sort of agreement. And in other mm-hmm. words, suddenly there'll be customs between uh, the UK and the EU and all sorts of passport requirements and all the sort of things that they were trying to avoid to make this a soft Brexit. Might not be, and there's a concern there that there'll be a certain level of chaos, obviously, and uh, trucks lining up at the borders and all those sort of things mm-hmm. um, if they don't come to some sort of an agreement uh, soon. But they're really running out of time at this point. You know, December 31st is it. You know, I've always be- believed that inertia sets in when these things occur, and they'll just continue to do the same things irrespective of whether there's an agreement or not. Uh, no, I don't. That there's certain legalities that come into play. Mm-hmm. Because without a customs agreement, then then customs take, you know, then you have to clear every every shipment, everything. There, it does. The inertia doesn't always work when it comes up against the law, mm-hmm. and so you'll have a law that suddenly you're going to have a complete mess. Um, maybe they'll overcome the mess. Maybe they can have a clean, a clean Brexit, uh, and not a soft Brexit. But let's put it this way: the markets in Britain are not looking very happy this morning yeah okay well we look upon the market as an indication there was a some uh rumor i'll call it a rumor there was a couple of other countries that were considering leaving the european union i believe in the only issue is some of the um some of the the eastern european countries hungary to less extent poland because they're unhappy with the provisions that they must maintain uh democracy and an independent judiciary as part, you know, the, the EU has certain minimal democratic standards. Of course, in both Hungary and Poland, you have uh, rather nationalist, um, they're not quite dictators, but very authoritarian rules. And in Poland particularly, you've had the um, Supreme Court, uh, or the, the whole court system, uh, totally taken over by the ruling party. Um, you've had similar problems in, in Hungary. And so um, there, there is pushback on the EU, and they're not willing to. Then everything in the EU has to be unanimous. Right. So on one hand, these countries are threatening not to approve the EU budget. On the other hand, the the other countries are, you know, not willing to accept uh, what's going on in terms of democracy in those two countries. Yeah, but I guess my my question is that are we seeing the foundation for the EU begin to becoming shaky? I don't know. Um, there's a possibility that it has become more shaky. Um, on the other hand, it may be, a, you know, history has these pen, pendulums. Mm-hmm. And um, you've had, you know, the pendulum of, uh, you know, in terms of the United States with America first, now with uh, with the Trump era, at least for the next four years receding, you'll have much more of a multilateral approach, and that may also impact what happens in Europe. So it's really hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um Listen, the reason the EU was started was because they needed the trade. You know, it started as a trade union, and it grew beyond that. Mm-hmm. It may have grown a little bit too much, and that's one of the questions. And most Europeans want to maintain their national identity uh, while having the ability to travel between countries and having all, this, all the advantages. So, you know, one of the problems we all have with everything is we always want the advantages without paying for any of it. Yeah, well, the other, the other thing, I, maybe they didn't go far enough, or, or maybe they went too far, or maybe they didn't go far enough. In other words, all or nothing, probably should have had the same currency, same uh, same uh, uh, treasury. And so, you know, in other words, uh, there's so many dysfunctional parts. Well, again, look at, you look, look at the United States, and you look at the transition from the Confederation to the United States of America, yeah. and the power the federal government got, 
And yet, on the other hand, state governments maintained a lot of power. And so, you know, that that was sort of what they were trying to model. Mm-hmm. Um, but the national identity is, you know, stronger. Well, national identity in Europe is sort of similar to the United States pre-Civil War. Mm-hmm. Remember, the pre-Civil War, most Americans identified as Virginians or Georgians or New Yorkers right. or whatever it might be, right. and then members, then then part of the United States. That changed after the Civil War to a very large degree. Yep. So we're in a we're in a pre-Civil War situation in Europe, and we'll see which way it uh, ends up working out. Uh, Mark, thank you for that analysis. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. Let's move to Somalia and what's happening. Well, in Somalia, President Trump has ordered the removal of all U.S. troops. Uh, the U.S. has been there fighting the terrorists, the Shabab terrorists. It's been an ongoing battle for, for many years. Um, they're removing the troops, moving them to Kenya. No one quite knows uh, what the goal here is. And again, it comes down to what our role is in terms of fighting international terror. Which brings me back again, of course, to Pearl Harbor. You know, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves constantly, and I don't have an easy answer, you know, it has to do with Afghanistan, it has to do with places like Somalia. Do we uh, try to fight terror overseas before it reaches the United States? Or do we get surprised like we did at Pearl Harbor or like we got surprised at 9-11? And it's difficult, difficult um, push and pull, you know. It is. I mean, it's, how long can American troops let's be just, in these places? On oh, one hand, yeah. On the other hand, you know, what are the alternatives? So, I mean, this brings us back to the war in Korea and also the war in Vietnam, for example. I mean, what did we accomplish? Well, okay, in Korea, we we definitely accomplished. In Korea, yeah. we stopped the advance of communism um, in the Korean Peninsula. There's no question about that. Right. Uh, there was a ended up being a stalemate and. Whether it was worth it, that's a whole other issue, of course. But we did stop, and especially back then, the advance of communism was a major concern. Right. Vietnam, much more problematic, but we didn't realize, you know, when we looked at it retrospectively, we didn't realize that communism was about to fall apart from the inside. Mm-hmm. And the reason we, the consequences of our loss in Vietnam weren't as bad as one could have imagined was the fact that communism started, you know, basically failed as an ideology. Right. And so... So Vietnam, the communist quote unquote won, but Vietnam is the capitalist country now. So yeah, who won? No, that's right. But it, the the issue is what did we accomplish there for them? And that's the in other words, would those things have worked out that way, irrespective of our involvement? That's an interesting question. It's it, it's hard to know. You know what would have happened? Let's say in terms of the march of communism. Let's say if we hadn't gotten involved in Vietnam in the in the early sixties when we first started getting involved, yeah. and Vietnam had indeed become communist in 1963, for the sake of argument, right? Mm-hmm. And would then, have, would then Cambodia and Laos also have become communist? You know, what would have happened to Malaysia? And, you know, the dominoes that they one talked about, were they actually real, or were they just a figment of someone's, you know, theory? Yeah, I mean, they didn't... Very hard to know. I've forgotten which of the uh, regimes, uh, was it Cambodia? I'm not sure where, uh, just... Uh, Killing of people because they wore eyeglasses. Cambodia, the Cambodian communist regime. Oh my God! The so, path of, not the path of Lao. The um, Cambodian communists. They killed all of you know millions of their own people. Those who wouldn't become agricultural and move out of the cities. They depopulated the cities. Um, terrible, terrible event. And we that was after we pulled out. Right. We didn't let you know. We did not raise a hand to save the people of Cambodia. So, and where does that stand now? Question, what, right? What's what's happening in Cambodia now? Cambodia now is a peaceful, um, capitalist, uh, relatively poor country, yeah. um, but not terribly poor, you know, by world standards. Um, so, you know, again, every, we pulled out of all of all of those areas, but again, because communism failed worldwide because they imploded from the Soviet Union, um, and China turned out to be a proto-capitalist dictatorship and not a communist country. Um, Communism lost its its way in most of the world. It doesn't. You know, there's no revolutionary communists anymore. Right. So, Mark, I guess my point my point in these questions is only that these are all. I respect you so much because, as an historian, you have a tremendous background and wisdom on all these issues. But I hope that when we think about our foreign policy, we think about these things and ask ourselves, what the heck did we accomplish? And help. To, well, that's help. always the question, right? Yeah. What What did we accomplish? But let's look at a. Let's look at the most obvious. Uh, foreign policy decision of the United States, the most important one, post-World War II, the Marshall Plan, yeah, and our involvement in Europe. Yeah. It stopped Europe from becoming communist in 
47, 48, 49. It worked. Yes. So that was clear cut. It worked then, and that was a period of time when the Soviets were expanding, and they had just won a good part of World War II, obviously, and they had a huge army. And their ideology had sort of been confirmed by their victory over Nazism. So it's not easy. It's It's not easy to come to to conclude what to do when it comes to overseas involvement. No, it it certainly isn't. Uh, uh, Mark, you know, I've got to move on here, but just I genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show, and I encourage our listeners to go to your website, historycentral.com. Introduce it to kids of all ages because it really brings history alive. Historycentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Have a wonderful week, Bob. You as well, thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It is brought to you in part by uh, Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. Uh, your listeners can learn a lot more about us by visiting our website, uh, fee, dot org. Uh, there we have daily fresh content, commentary, economics, history, uh, you name it. And uh, also we have archived there some 65 years of content that's easily searchable. Everything that we do on the website and in uh, in-person seminars around the country is aimed at uh, educating and inspiring young people of high school and college age in ideas of liberty, free market economics, private property, and personal character. At this time, what's more important, quite frankly, and uh, I just encourage our listeners, young people of those ages, just introduce them to this terrific organization, especially if they can get a first-hand involvement with uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. FEE.org, F-E-E.org is the website. 
Larry, you wrote such an inspiring column, How to Get the Most Out of Others. Now, it sounds like kind of a mundane type of topic, but my goodness, this is, maybe you could tell us about it. Okay. Yeah, this is a, a great story from 2008. Uh, I learned about it <clears throat> in a book by sports writer David Thomas. The book is entitled Remember Why You Play. And he recounts this uh, wonderful incident in, uh, at the end of the season in 2008. Uh, two teams of high school football players were uh, slated to uh, play each other. One was uh, the Lions of Faith Christian High School in Grapevine, Texas. And the other was also a Texas team, the Gainesville State School Tornadoes. And uh, the Faith Christian players had everything in their favor. Uh, They had already guaranteed uh, themselves a slot in the upcoming state playoffs. The Gainesville players, on the other hand, uh, would seem on paper at that moment to have been losers in both life and football. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were teenage prisoners of a maximum security correctional facility. They had won up to this point of this game no games, and they scored only two touchdowns all season. Uh, And they boarded the bus for the one-hour drive to Grapevine uh, with the lowest of expectations. But as it turned out, uh, it was one of the most moving and inspirational evenings that anybody could imagine. Uh, The coach of the Faith Christian team saw an opportunity to make a statement. He He realized that these Gainesville players Uh, were sort of written off, and here they were prisoners early in life, you know, not much of a future perhaps ahead of them in many cases. And so uh, he organized this so that the uh, parents and students from uh, Faith Christian would welcome the uh, students from Gainesville onto the field Mm -hmm. uh, uh, by cheering them. Uh, Half of the Faith uh, Christian school fans and cheerleaders went over to the visitor side of the stadium. They treated the Gainesville players as if they were the home team. Uh, parents of uh, faith Christian players were encouraging kids they didn't even know uh, to tackle their own sons. And they were waving banners for the tornadoes, for the Gainesville team, and so forth. In other words, just not only welcoming them, but cheering them on uh, to play a, a spirited game. And it turned out... Uh, the Gainesville team played its best game of the entire season. They did lose to the great find, uh, our faith Christian students. But after the game, uh, tears were flowing freely. Uh, nobody felt he was a loser. Lifelong friends and memories were made. Uh, spirits and standards were lifted. Mm-hmm. The effect of that moment will resonate uh, in many lives for years to come. And uh, what an encouragement. That's In fact, that's why... I wrote this because I wanted to use it as one of the best examples I could think of, of the power of encouragement. Yeah. Now, real life lesson, object lesson here, and I think this, I'm so happy that you wrote this because this is the kind of thing that you'll find at the Foundation for Economic Education, again, introducing your kids to this. Now, you expand this because they, you know, almost every occasion offers an opportunity. It's a teaching opportunity. It is an opportunity to learn not just things, but learn about life. Yeah, absolutely. And being an economist, I thought it would be important to uh, apply some of this to uh, economics. And because people are creatures of incentives and disincentives, we really do respond to things like encouragement. Mm -hmm. If you want entrepreneurs to build an economy, to make investments, uh, to take risks, to provide employment, to expand uh, their factories and their businesses and so forth that benefit everybody, you better encourage them. I mean, don't stand by and say, as President Obama did, you didn't build that. And don't try to uh, load them down with uh, taxes and regulations beyond reason. And and don't vilify them because they are people who are trying to do better. Uh, Any economy that, uh, uh, that is to grow must encourage the people who take the risks and do the things that make an economy grow. That's such an important lesson. And again, when I read this story, just I, I'll never forget the story now that I've read it. It's just a, a beautiful, beautiful expression of uh, lifting others up who are down and uh, expressing confidence and encouragement to those that uh, need a, help, a helping hand, not through welfare, not through some nameless program, but through genuine expressions of caring. 
That's right. And in this case, it didn't cost anybody a penny. Yeah. It was just an expression of, uh, of goodwill, friendship, and encouragement. It didn't require a grant from the government or any other outside external uh, source. Great story, Larry. Again, Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. And again, uh, take a look at the column. You'll find it. It was just published this week at the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Uh, he also has written a couple of great novels after his retirement. And uh, he lives in the Beltway, so he has an interesting point of view. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tammy Amy Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Just a little, one of my advertisers is Lulabee's Diner at the corner right there in our Green Tree Shopping Center. And I encourage you to patronize them. Great breakfast and lunch and great supporters of St. Matthew's House. Just do really important work. Lulabee's Diner at the Green Tree Shopping Center. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His two latest are Great Murder Mysteries. Follow the leader and shake the money tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, it's always a pleasure. You know, I'm, I'm trapped like most people in not-so-splendid isolation. So, you know, cut off from my sources, cut off from my social circles. So it's great to uh, talk to a fellow human being. It uh, is. Because I spend, I spend most of my mornings now. I'm more dependent than ever on newspapers, and I, I look at the headlines, and like I said, I'm cut off from my sources, so I try to read between the lines, and, and uh, I see some some alarming trends, a little bit contrarian. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, the rollout of the uh, COVID-19 vaccines, which, you know, purportedly will begin about December 15th. Uh, we've, we're already reading that you know, there are bumps along the road that we expected 300 million doses, I think, and now we're going to get at best 30 million in the beginning, which will mean rationing. Um, and this reminds me of World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rick Atkinson, a historian, wrote a wonderful book about the invasion of North Africa. And in the early days, there were uh, supply line snafus 
much like we're seeing in the vaccine rollout. And in one uh, notable case, a, a unit of American tanks went into battle against the Germans, and uh, our tanks were equipped with practice uh, ammunition. So that didn't work out well. But my point being that this is like a war. Uh, we have to be patient. We have to expect uh, blunders because, uh, you, know, you know, we learn as we go along. And, and, and the learning curve in this situation is very, very steep. You know, it's yeah. remarkable how fast we've come already, warp speed, developing the vaccines. Uh, but the rollout is a whole different set of problems. So um, I would tell people to be patient and maybe uh, withhold your bullishness until uh, 2022. Well, I'll say this. Uh, there a lot of people, the polls that I've seen, I think something like neighborhood of 30 to 50% of the people are hesitant to get vaccinated for the uh, COVID-19. First of all, the death rate is low. And I'll, as I understand it, the uh, chance of uh, side effects are 10 to 15% on this thing. So uh, not everybody's real excited about it. In, in other words, not everybody's in a big hurry to get vaccinated. Some are. Some are just fearful and think this is the final solution. But uh, the other thing is uh, Moderna. Uh, Pfizer, uh, a number of companies, Johnson and Johnson is apparently coming out with a new vaccination. So there's there's some choices. People, I think, ought to do their homework before jumping into this. Well, yeah. Also, you're going to have batch problems. Like some batches will go bad because because of the um, you know the, the requirement that you keep some of these vaccines uh, below uh, Arctic temperatures. Right. It's going to cause some headaches. And uh, to your point, there will be uh, side effects. It will frighten some people. And the other thing is, uh, I think two of the three vaccines require a, a booster shot. So you might get the initial vaccine, and then down the road, there might be a shortage of the booster shot, rendering the initial vaccine totally useless. So uh, these are things to consider. Absolutely. Well, I don't know if you've uh, followed any of the work of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's the uh, chair- chairman of the Children's Health Defense. I think it's just called Children's Health Defense. He's a brilliant man. He's uh, the uh, son. Is he? Yeah, yeah, he's the son or grandson of Robert of uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, and the, the point is that he's uh, shown how vaccines have caused serious problems around the world, causing numerous deaths. So, uh, I mean, if you want to f- get fully informed, I think that's one of the people that you want to follow. Yeah. Now, now the other headline uh, is in the New York Post today. It's about Goldman Sachs is considering moving one of its major asset management units either to uh, your part of the world, southern Florida, or to Texas. And uh, we've had uh, a major hedge fund already move to Florida. And I know I have uh, contacts in the money management business who have moved uh, down to Florida. what this tells me, it presages uh, a huge increase of taxes at all levels uh, once COVID passes us, because you know we're at we're in the equivalent, as I mentioned, of a war, and we have to pay our our war debt at some point. It doesn't matter who is control in control of uh, Washington; taxes are going to rise, and, and and they're probably going to be especially severe in uh, liberal states like uh, New York and California. And so you, you hear Elon Musk talking about moving to Texas. So uh, the lesson reading between the lines is like, you know, if this smart money is worried about taxes at this point, and they're moving already in the midst of a pandemic to, you know, to prepare for the future, uh, you know, the average person should begin to think seriously about uh, life in a regime of uh, higher taxes. Uh, absolutely. Well, this has been going on for quite a while, and we've seen a number of representatives. That's just one indicator, but we've seen, uh, for example, New York lose the number of representatives in the House of Representatives and gained in Florida, and that's, uh, you know, money moves according to the uh, services and the taxes that have to be paid. And uh, what, what we're going to see in, in New York, in my opinion, we're going to see an increase in taxes and a reduction in services. And I think that's already started. So uh, these northern, these northern heavily taxed areas, California would be another example, are, are, are in trouble. 
they are they have underfunded pensions too which is a you know i mean you can see you can see a debt bomb uh, uh, down the road and so uh you know it's uh, it's something that we can't ignore and that and then the third headline i see today is actually from the chinese communist uh propaganda rag the people's daily but it shows that china's exports in november increased by over 14 percent now the bulk of the exports went to southeast asia mm. um places like cambodia and vietnam which you know we're buying goods from Cambodia and Vietnam to, to circumvent China now, but China's part of that supply chain, so it's win-win for them. Uh, the EU has become China's second largest trading partner, mm-hmm. and then and then the U.S. So so uh, China is winning the germ war there. I mean, uh, they've destroyed the economies of the West, and their economy is doing uh, swell. So I just, so let me just, stop, to move, I just want to uh, stop you there. How, how do we know that the Chinese economy is doing well? Uh, well, we don't know for sure. I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't just trust their numbers, but uh, I see, I see other headlines in American papers that are confirming, you know, our, our analysts are confirming that Chinese export growth uh, is up. I've seen some estimates as high as 20 percent. Huh. So when I look at the 14 percent estimate from China, it's probably in the ballpark. But let's say it's only 10 or 9 percent. Uh, they're still they're still recovering nicely while the rest of the world is uh, reeling. Uh, I happen to believe that uh, you know maybe maybe at the onset the virus was accidental, but I think they deliberately exported the virus to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, realizing that it would cause havoc here in the West, and uh, uh, so they're winning this uh, this war. Interesting, as interesting thoughts indeed. And uh, well, you know, right now there's a lot hinging on this election, including what's going to be our position with China. We know where the President Trump stands, and he's uh, very concerned about intellectual property theft. He's concerned about the uh, and well, you heard the uh, I've forgotten his name now, but the uh, guy from the intelligence, the head of intelligence here in the United States, made comments. He's just basically said, hey, we, the American people need to know where these people are uh, our biggest enemy in, in any way that you want to describe enemies. Uh, the, the communist Chinese have want to dominate the world. Yeah, I mean, as he, as he pointed out, the, uh, their manufacturing is part of their armed forces. Uh, they've learned the lesson of World War II where we defeated the Germans and we defeated the Japanese uh, because of our industrial might. You know, we could replace... Uh, ships and, and tanks and planes faster than they could. And uh, the Chinese uh, are trying to do this, be in the same position, that if they go to the war with the United States, our manufacturing base will be crippled, and uh, they'll be able to just uh, tough it out over us. Well, you know, it, you, we're talking about going to war, and we're talking about warfare with guns and ships and things like that, but there's another type of warfare, cyber warfare and uh, trade warfare. That, you know, in, in many measures... And many metrics were already at war with China. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we are at war uh, with China, and uh, the public has to get into this uh, mindset. Uh, you know, we, if if we can be united on one thing, it's that we're under attack, and and uh, you know we have to rally around the flag. Yeah, no question. Again, Jim McTagg, if you want to read a couple of great murder mysteries, just great reading right now. This, today would be the do it you know, day to do it down here because of the uh, the weather. We got some rain and. It's about 55 degrees out, so it's just freezing cold. <laughs> oh, I wish we had 55. Yeah. In any rate, the, the, the books are Follow the Leader and its sequel or Shake the Money Tree. Just two great reads. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Bob. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I had fun and always appreciate your comments. If you'd like to send me an email. You can also ask to be on the uh, newsletter. So I'll put you on the subscription list. Just send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. We'll have Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator, on. She's gearing up for a big legislative session. We have a lot to deal with here in Florida. Also, Boo Mortensen will be with us. We'll find out what's new with Boo on the Paradise Coast. That's a lighter part of the show. And Seton Motley is the founder and president of uh, Less Government. Linda will be joining us as well. My lovely wife, Linda, will be talking about what's happening in the world. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. 
Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com. <laughs>